If you're working in these kind of contexts, you know, I was working in northern Uganda for a long time, so working in Palestine, and you come back to the UK and mm. people are like, oh, what you do, it's so amazing, and, you know, you must find it so rewarding. Even and... as you say that. No, no it's not. <laughs> stop, stop saying that, it's yeah. not amazing. And you never know what to say to people because yeah. the intentions are good but by saying that. In some ways, it's a very hard, it's a hard question to answer because you feel it's not true, you know, that it's not all rewarding. But also it kind of creates this gap of, you know, do people understand mm. what we do and how do we really talk about the work honestly and truthfully? Gemma pivoted away from a career in program management and human rights advocacy to undertake a PhD in how we think in the aid sector about stress and meaning. That done, she's now an independent consultant and facilitator on how aid agencies and aid workers can create more healthy and inclusive workspaces. With that as background, we have a wide-ranging conversation that touches on some of the most critical and yet under-discussed issues in the aid sector broadly conceived. How do people find meaning in the work over the long term? How does this differ from the the stereotype, the image, the public-facing narrative that we present? What does this look like for the majority of the workforce who are people working on challenges in their own countries as as so-called national staff rather than expatriates? What would a healthier culture look like, one which engages with the workforce as, as whole persons and not as some sort of caricature of a perfect humanitarian? If you are interested in more, you can check out Gemma's blog, Life in Crisis. For now, you are listening to One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. The last few years, I've been studying my PhD at Sussex University, investigating stress in the aid sector. But I was also for some time doing consultancy work alongside that. And that probably links to the broader work that I've been doing for the past 15 years or so, which was working on human rights programmes, documenting, raising awareness of human rights abuses, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in uh, East Africa and in Palestine. Uh, And also working with, uh, alongside civil society organisations, civil society groups in those contexts to kind of mobilise their own communities around peace and justice issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that was really my main work for many, many years, but now I'm interested in moving more towards looking at staff dynamics in the development aid, human rights, humanitarian sector, looking at well-being and looking at how organisations can evolve more healthily. Mm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that enrolling in a doctoral programme is not done lightly. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty big, pretty big step or commitment. What prompted you to switch from that sort of operational or, or um, advocacy-enabling role to this mm. relatively specific issue? Was there some experience or incident or pattern of events that prompted mm. that? 
Yes, um, it was certainly inspired by my own experiences. I guess there were a couple of particular moments in um, the work I was doing that prompted a lot of self-doubt, certainly a lot of exhaustion, a lot of questioning of the impact of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that last sort of pivotal moment came back in 2010. 12 now actually when I was working in Palestine um, in the West Bank and came out from working there and came back to the UK kind of wondering if anything I'd done there had any meaning whatsoever um, whether I was possibly not even really whether there was any purpose to it I guess and yeah, just really exhausted and, and questioning everything. And then I started wondering, you know, this, this, this term, this, this issue of burnout, it was being bandied about among me and my colleagues in different settings, not just working in Palestine, but other NGO contexts. People were talking about burnout, and I was seeing people burn out. I was seeing people clearly not very well, um, and not dealing with the fact that they weren't very well. So that really prompted me to explore this. Um, mm. I, I decided to study it uh, more deeply for the next few years um, with a kind of commitment to trying to take that back into the sector. You know, what, what do we mean by this? What, what's going wrong here? Uh, what's happening at the individual level and what's also happening at the organisational level? Um, mm. So, yeah, it, it came from my experience and a commitment to trying to address it and, and support the sector with it. Do people get that? I mean, people outside the sector sort of have this uh, idea that working um, in, in public service or in, in the charitable sector is great because it's motivating and there's a sense of purpose and that's sort of what you get in exchange for generally worse money and working conditions. Mm. But that's not so much the reality. <laughs> no, the reality yeah. is more complicated than that, right? Yeah. How do you communicate that or how, do you, how would you explain that to somebody who has that kind of image in their mind? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the public image and I, I always had trouble with that and I'm sure many other people in my sector have as well you know if you're working in these kind of contexts you know, I was working in northern Uganda for a long time so I was also working in Palestine and you come back to the UK and mm. people are like oh what you do it's so amazing and you know you must find it so rewarding even as you say that you know, no it's not <laughs> stop, stop saying that it's yeah. not amazing and you never know what to say to people because yeah. the intentions are good but by saying that and yeah. you know they're almost envious but that you're doing something meaningful. Mm. And so it's very, in some ways, it's a very hard, it's a hard question to answer because you feel it's not true, you know, that it's not all rewarding. But also it kind of creates this gap of, you know, do people understand mm. what we do and how do we really talk about the work that we do honestly and truthfully when there's this sort of public perception that we're heroic and we're going out to save lives and that we're strong and courageous so there's, I think there's a problem there. I think it's really difficult to, um, when we've got this kind of public pressure mm. to be heroic, to actually say, 
yeah, it's really difficult. And sometimes I really hate my job. And sometimes I hate the people I'm working with. And sometimes I feel I have absolutely no impact mm. whatsoever. Or that I'm not welcome in the countries that I'm working in. Mm. Um, you know, there's so many complicated dynamics there that are very hard to actually discuss when you come back from the field and, and talk about your work. Mm. Are we complicit in creating that? narrative? Are people in the sector part of creating that image of, of, of saviour or hero, whatever the phrase is, but that mm. kind of pop, that model of the popular imagination? I think so. I think there is a problem there and I definitely talk about that in my, in my thesis, in my PhD thesis. So I, I have a kind of archetype that I, I describe in the thesis, which is the perfect humanitarian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's particular qualities associated with the perfect humanitarian. And it's, it's often what we see on our TV screens here, the very central image of usually a white Western aid worker from a high-income country who's, who's kind of made the sacrifice to travel to a poor country or a war-affected country and, you know, they, they're working really hard, they're dedicated to their job 24-7, that's what they do and there's a certain kind of heroism to it, a certain kind of gung-ho, I'm going to go in and just go for it. People refer to cowboys, like this kind of cowboy mm -hmm. culture of um, smoking and drinking and, you know, really getting into the nitty-gritty and taking risks mm -hmm. in these environments. And yeah, we all feed into that. Um, I think as people working in the sector, there is, there is a bit of... Uh, rivalry as to kind of how many war wounds you can gather along the way, how much trauma you can have and how much you cope with it and carry on as well. So, you know, the, the perfect humanitarian is the person that keeps on going in that environment or they kind of go from one emergency context to another, flying from one to another every few years and they don't really have much of a family life and their private life is supposedly not part of the picture like mm. their life is their work mm. um, and I think that's problematic for a number of reasons I think it's not letting us see the sort of multi-dimensional elements of every human being that we all come with our hopes our desires our fears our self-doubts we have our emotional baggage we have our family we have histories, and, and those don't always get much of a, a look in. And also, it's, it's, I argue in my thesis, it's a kind of, it's a racialized image, this, this perfect humanitarian. It's, it's assuming that you have the knowledge and the capacity and um, the status to cross borders and go fly from one place to another, and that you also... Yeah, don't have too much kind of family getting in the way. And I think that image is often very much focused on a particular type of individual. And that individual is, is often from Europe or from America. Um, we don't hear so much about the people that are working in those countries permanently and living there from those countries, um, in, whether it's an African country or in Asia or the Middle East. So... 
Yeah, I, I think the sector unfortunately contributes to that sort of those assumptions of what it means to be a really good humanitarian, mm. um, and it's it's problematic. What's the uh, the right or the more representative image? Then we've sort of referred to the aid worker in air quotes of the popular imagination as kind mm. of a caricature, which absolutely is. Uh, in my space, you could say the same for peacekeepers or, or the, the peace building end of things. Mm. That popular image is largely wrong or largely not representative. So what is the more representative narrative here? What does this look like? Who are we talking about in that 90% that you referred to? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is this person's sort of life and career trajectory? How do we, mm -hmm. how do we put that in a capsule? Well, of course, it's complex, and there's no of one course. individual. Without doing undue violence to. Uh... So let's not create another generalized archetype. Of course, or personality. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. let's let's do exactly that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess I can give some examples from mm -hmm. from my research. So, so you know, for instance, there were, of course, people who are absolutely dedicated to their work mm -hmm. to such an extent that it becomes their identity. That is what they do. And, and one of my research participants springs to mind, and he's, he's an Ethiopian man who works, works in the UN system for many, many years, uh, working in different humanitarian interventions, hugely dedicated to what he does, but at the expense of his private life. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got a family that he barely ever sees because they're living in one place and he's traveling all over the place. But he is, he's, you know, he loves his work. He's dedicated to it. Also just turning to some of the, the national staff I met, um, you know, many of them in Kenya had been working in very remote contexts for long periods of time. And this was in contrast to a lot of the international aid workers who, you know, if you're on this sort of humanitarian roster, you're, you're often going from one emergency intervention to another. You're not staying in one country for more than two, three years, and, and then you're moving on a lot of the time. That's what's happening. But I was meeting national staff uh, working, for instance, in a humanitarian setting like Kakuma refugee camp in northern Kenya, where they'd been there for many years, you know, mm. five, ten years, away from their family, that the family is in another part of the country, and they're plugging away at their work, quietly getting on with it, and also putting up with a lot of the inequalities within the system whereby it's the international staff that get evacuated it's the international staff that get access to good medical services if they need therapy or if they become really ill it's the international staff that are there temporarily and can leave and go back home and then there are the Kenyan staff who are there without those same benefits, but are staying in the job because it provides them with a stable income to look after their families. Um, and they've got various extended family responsibilities, uh, which I think for many of us in uh, the global north, in high income countries, don't have quite those same responsibilities most of the time. 
Mm, indeed. Uh, and, and what's the, the practical implication there? We have this uh, different and, and more correct, perhaps, picture of the typical aid worker. What uh, significance did that have when you were trying to conceptualize stress and well-being in the workplace? When we talk about stress and these sorts of terms, to, to be careful about what we mean by that, um, because there's a lot of pathologizing in Global North around these experiences. And that's, there's, it's not a bad thing in itself. You know, people get help and they get support, professional support, by the pathologizing of, of um, an illness, by stress becoming a thing that you need professional clinical support for. And I, I think what I found interesting in my research is that some of, uh, particularly some of the African uh, aid workers, Kenyans, uh, Kenyans and Somalis mainly, they were kind of like, but stress, what is stress? You know, what do you mean by this stress thing? I mean, stress is just life, right? Uh, you know, why are you, why are you picking out this thing as if it's something big? And I think that, that was very interesting because it helped me see that this, this uh, condition that's become much talked about in our sector, particularly terms like burnout and trauma, doesn't have the same meaning across all cultures and societies. It doesn't mean that those things don't exist, but I think we just have to have more of a listening ear to how these things are, are understood and made sense of. And for a lot of people that are living in those contexts where they can't escape and they are in war zones or mm -hmm. they're in extremely impoverished areas, to start talking about what to do about your trauma is a bit of a challenge and is, isn't such an easy thing when you haven't got access to those medical services and you can't just leave. You can't mm. just leave and get help in another country or whatever. And the same with terms like resilience as well. You know, what does resilience really mean? We keep talking about resilience of aid workers now. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, it's a mystery. Yeah, I, I, and I think... Um, yeah, we just need to be bringing a bit more awareness to the fact that particularly looking at national staff, they are often born into these contexts. Mm. And so the way they make sense of them is, is very different from someone that's flying in and flying out. And within that, I found interesting the role of religion and religious faith and how that was a form of meaning making. It was a form of um, understanding the world around them and a motivating factor for doing aid work as well, because you're no longer answerable just to what the donor says or, or you know, what your employer says. You're, you're answer, answerable to a greater power, God or supernatural power of some sort. And the fact that uh, it's, a, it's a coping mechanism to be able to have that relationship with, with God. So I, I, found, I found that interesting because it challenges our sort of assumptions about what stress is, how we manage it, how we make sense of it, what support is needed. Mm. Yeah, and I, I just think that it, it, we have to acknowledge this complexity and also that 
stress is sometimes not the obvious thing like the critical incident, the, the bombing that occurs in a particular context or a kidnapping or those things which of course are serious and stressful but stress is also part of it's often the everyday grind it's often the uncertainty of your job contracts not mm -hmm. knowing if your job's going to come to an end when your contract's up uh, stress is also not being able to look after all your dependents because you haven't got enough uh, high enough salary even mm -hmm. though your international colleagues have a very comfortable salary and live in a really big house and you don't and you've got all this family to look after you, you know those those sorts of dynamics or for a woman for instance the fact that you know what can be stressful is being out in the field as the only woman mm. um, and having to interact with what can be very aggressive groups of men in these sorts of militarized environments that I'm sure you're familiar with as well you know, those things are perhaps more subtle, but they're part of the everyday life of an aid worker and, mm. and the stress that builds up because it's difficult in itself and because you can't talk about it because there's no space mm. or people don't want to hear about it. Yeah, we have these sort of predictable, um, perhaps, stresses and, and difficulties. Uh, what I think I'm hearing is that the institutional or policy uh, status quo doesn't necessarily engage with these factors very effectively. Is that a fair, fair interpretation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the way organizations operate is a massive problem um, because it is shutting out those complexities. Mm -hmm. Um, and we see that in a number of ways. And, and obviously, the sort of imagery around this perfect humanitarian is linked to that. It's this very kind of macho environment where people are seeking the next emergency and, and trying to sort of show that they're capable. In that environment, it's very hard to uh, admit that you're not coping. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to be vulnerable in any way and it's also difficult to bring in your your private life your family life in any way so you look in the context of the typical humanitarian environment where you have what's called the non-family duty station you know these these um big uh, humanitarian compounds where you find all the aid agency staff next to the refugee camp or wherever it, it may be a disaster area and they're not allowed to bring their families with them. Um, now, there are often valid reasons for that because of insecurity and because of the risks in the area. But I think I would question whether it's always a necessity to have that, that policy in place and those structures in place that, that shut you off from people around you. Um, so you're not able to communicate so easily with your loved ones or you, you go and see them every eight to ten weeks during your rest and recuperation period you're also confined within this compound space where you know you're you're with these big compound walls you're immediately sending off a message that you need to be safe inside because the local community outside is dangerous so you're increasing many different social divides 
mm. uh, by operating like that. So this is how I think aid agencies kind of contribute to this this narrative of leave your private lives sort of at the front gates, please. Like we, we don't we don't want too much of that encroaching on the work. That again comes from in some ways a well-intentioned place. It comes from this idea of, you know, we're here to help others and the suffering that we're dealing with surely is greater than our own suffering and let's not let our suffering get in the way. But I, I would argue that's also not a healthy way of going about doing this work because we lose, we lose our humanity by working in that way. We lose the fact that actually we do all suffer and we do all have our own vulnerabilities. Perhaps if we brought that more into the space, we'd be able to communicate better with each other and with the communities that we're supporting as well. Mm. Mm. It's almost a sort of neoliberal model in a way, right? The, the work sphere is one thing and it's very narrowly defined and everything outside of that is, is kind of your problem. <laughs> Adapt, yeah. deal with it. It's not our problem. We pay you to deliver. Absolutely. And X even, and Y. And even certain well-being services are guilty of that too. I have this commitment now to, to really explore exploring what well-being means in our sector. But for me, what it doesn't mean is bringing in just a counselling service or mm. bringing in someone who's going to do some nice yoga and meditation exercises all of those have a place and they work for some people and they don't work for others but that in itself isn't enough because it's still feeding into this neoliberal idea of let's all make ourselves feel better and we'll just carry on business as usual um, let's have our, our nice little well-being package to ensure that staff still work crazy hours and meet these crazy deadlines and and you know the actual system itself and the problems within the system don't change um, and so when we're talking about well-being we're actually talking about structural systemic change which is far harder to achieve than simply having a nice well-being policy in place I mean, that's sort of the the everyday level mm-hmm. um, and the thing that struck me was the the title of your actual thesis the results of this research was discourses of stress and meaning making mm-hmm. is the implication that one is closely linked to the other that stress is linked to a inability to find meaning to or to mm. a failure to find meaning or thinking that you have meaning and then discovering that uh, you know the premises of that have sort of fallen away or are these two parallel questions? Mm, interesting, yeah. I think both. <laughs> um, definitely both. The main title, of course, is The Vulnerable Humanitarian, and that, that the discourses of stress and meaning-making mm. come after. And the reason I say that is that I think that's part of it, is, is that when that vulnerability comes in what do you do with it do you push it away and pretend it's not there and then often you end up getting more and more ill because you're not addressing your vulnerability or do you bring that into what you do so that you're making sense of your work in a a different way so 
So really just as some examples, you know, there were certainly people that were now deriving meaning from the fact that they'd been through a hugely stressful time. Three examples I can think of, all of them European women who had suffered either a serious trauma or a serious burnout where they were pretty much incapacitated by it. But up until that point, they had been working really hard, outwardly focusing, it's all about the other, it's all about helping, and not taking care of their own health or their own needs. And now they're in a place where some of them are still doing the work and some of them aren't, but you know, they are taking care of themselves better and they're being more reflective of, you know, why am I doing this work? Like, really? Why am I taking this so seriously? Like, what, how can I be doing this differently so that I haven't got this huge sort of idealism that's unrealistic? Um, how can I just enjoy the day-to-day of what I do and, and find meaning within that, within just the context of the interactions I have with the people I work with? rather than I'm doing this because I need to end torture or I need to end this human rights violation, even if that is somehow a goal that you want, you aspire to. So I think there's that side of it. There are the people that kind of have a major crisis and then suddenly their life's purpose kind of change, it shifts um, and they go through a sort of healing journey to get there. But there are also others who are They've been doing the work for many years and they're often the victim of the worst kind of organisational processes and poor management and all of that. But they carry on because there's still something in what they do that they believe in. And again, I would say this was often what I got from the Kenyan staff. Mm. You know, that they struggled in difficult contexts, um, some of the people I spoke to, particularly in northern Kenya, Often, you know, whether it's working with refugees or working in very impoverished communities and is one of the poorest counties in the country, very remote, miles away from anyone, not particularly great salary for a lot of them, you know, um, but they derive meaning from the day-to-day interactions with the communities that they worked with. You know, they're just the small moments where they could see some change or, or someone someone's life slightly improved or, or some kind of time that's shared together um, where there is where there is laughter and there is understanding and there is appreciation and I thought that was that was interesting and again certainly religious faith played a role for some of those uh, Kenyans that I spoke to because there was that shared meaning making together in a Mm. way that often doesn't happen particularly when we're engaging with local communities you know that it's we are the aid worker they are the beneficiaries in inverted commas again i don't like that term but um (laughs) we definitely need new words i think it's safe to say anyone (laughs) who's still listening to this podcast it's not like that term either (laughs) um but yeah, just ha- again, it, people finding ways of engaging that yeah. 
I think a lot of the time we as aid workers struggle with, we struggle to move beyond the pigeonholing of our identities, mm. um, our work, our professional identities. And, and yeah, how can we sort of move beyond that so we can actually engage with people and not feel this huge gaping difference. So I found that interesting, particularly among those that were working more with uh, often Christians working with faith-based organisations, which I know for for some people listening, the obvious thing would be, no, that's hugely problematic and it's evangelising and and whilst I agree that that, that, is prob- that aspect is problematic mm. in a lot of these organisations, I think there's something there in how you can bring people together to, to find meaning yeah. together. And religious faith or spirituality is one way of doing that. And I think that's where there's the, the power. Yeah, I think, I think we have to also recognise that when we are talking about who is the person and who is the you know, what 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 is the who is the aid worker and what are their different um, personalities and that many of them are religious you know sure. they are they are following a religious faith and and this is again much alongside all the other parts of one's private life sort of kept at the gates you know it's mm. it's like oh that's that's their private life it's nothing to do with what we're doing here but it actually is it clearly is. it's everything to do with what yeah. why the people are doing it and it's a motivating factor and it's a coping mechanism um you know let's not sort of dismiss it out of hand of oh it's culture and mm. it's what those people do because mm. then we are just again othering and we're creating that divide um, but yeah, what can we learn from that? I think that's it's interesting. Yeah, and hopefully those, that kind of reflection can happen before one reaches the point of a crisis, right? whether coming from yeah. within or coming from the environment. Um, that can't be the first point at which you Absolutely. engage in that sort of reflective exercise. No, I mean, this is it. This is why it needs to be happening. You know, it needs to be happening with people coming into the sector that are new to the sector, but... It absolutely also isn't, though, right? I mean, ongoing not, exercises. Not in my experience. Like, this is not something that is part of onboarding no. at all. No, what, what was... what I know with one organisation I work with, and I think more are doing it, they had these kind of psychometric tests where <laughs> they, you know, they ask you about your sort of personality traits in the interview process. Yes. I mean, again... It's a, it's a sort of, you I'm, know... It's I'm a, an ENTJ, if you're wondering. If you, couldn't, yeah. if, you couldn't, if you couldn't tell, it's probably obvious. Exactly. I mean, you know, again, it's kind of... I think it's too narrow. Uh, uh, it's pigeonholing people again, in a way. Yes. Um, and sort of leaving it at that, rather than actually kind of exploring what this means day to day and what the positive qualities of that are and how it can yeah. be to good use. Realise that being a newly minted PhD, this goes against every fibre of your being, but do you have a sort of top three or so structural changes of the type you're describing? If you were given full remit to redesign key practices, systems Mm. and processes in an organisation, what is the short list of things you would be looking at? 
Well, that's, yeah, you are. Don't say it depends. You're, you're challenging me <laughs> there that's, that's after having my head in academia for, for all these years to, to sort of... I'm, I'm transitioning you to the consulting world. Yeah, no, and it's, it's exactly what I need to be thinking of. I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. I think one aspect is um, family life and, and, mm-hmm. and how much time is given to family life. Um, and what policies can be in place to protect that because I think you know so many of the people I spoke to particularly the women in Kenya who are you know wives and mothers with many responsibilities but that not being recognized and particularly if you're working in a humanitarian environment it's 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 unfavorably skewed I mean it's the it's an environment that favours a, a single man or a man that doesn't mind leaving his wife and family behind in another part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a woman to do the same is very different and very difficult and should be judged for that. So what can the sector do about that? If we are really working on gender equality, how are we bringing that into our organisations and practising what we preach in terms of how much respect is given for family time uh, and how much you might be able to bring your family with you to where you work rather than them being in another part of the country? Or you, you change the way parental leave uh, occurs and, and you, it's equally weighted. I mean, those are the sorts of policies I think need to be looked at in terms of encouraging private life as part of a normal human being and how they work but also encouraging the very principles that we're fighting for more broadly within the sector. There are other perhaps obvious things that some of which are happening but need to be happening more. I think you know the localization agenda for one thing is has the potential to be a positive move towards expanding the capacities and the presence of the local workforce in in the global south but there needs to be um, much more uh, to address the managerial roles and and how they can be taken on more by people at the local level and really how we listen more to those voices for instance, when putting together well-being policies. So if we're going to put together a comprehensive well-being policy for an organisation, we need to be hearing from the 90% of staff, or however many it may be within one organisation, who are within those countries that we're operating in. You know, what, what does well-being look like to them and and how can that be brought into the workspace to actually support people so i think actually that's one of the crucial things right now to be considering so and and i've been asked this before what policy what needs to change so that we address this imbalance well i could give lots of answers but i also feel that we need to be hearing more from Mm people in those contexts if we really mean what we say about expanding the local workforce what do they have to say about this what's Mm -hmm. what does well-being mean for them what services need to be available and we need to be considering those i'm only really answering with two possible replies there and i'm going to try and avoid going on to the third one just sit here in awkward silence (laughs) 
I mean, I will, I will add with that, you know, if we're looking at policies, yes, there, there should be counselling and there should be, you know, services available for people. That's, mm. That, of course, is important. But I would also argue that it's not just about having the policies in place. It's, there's a more complicated thing that needs to happen here about the day-to-day organisational culture that doesn't get resolved through policies alone. It gets resolved through a commitment by all of us to try and work together differently and, and be listen to each other more actually you know actually be willing to to have the space to hear how someone is doing and if they're struggling and to not judge the struggle and I think that's what I'm interested in in trying to support organizations with now is is how do we create that space where people actually feel they can talk about their suffering and how we can actually ensure that we are listening. Is there a case where I've seen that working relatively well or at least attempting to move in that direction? I mean, we need more examples of that and I think that's another whole piece of research that needs to be done. But Mm -hmm. um, I did see one example in Kenya uh, where that was being done fairly well from what I was seeing as a researcher where the director of the organisation was working really hard to create a space that was more open um, but open in the sense that um, you could come and talk to the manager you know and talk to her about your problems and, and have a collective discussion about things that were going wrong within the organisation um, and, and just bringing a kind of more gentle touch to the work so it wasn't all about being macho and, and the sort of more aggressive qualities that are often rewarded within the sector mm. and much more about you know can we talk let's talk about our feelings more and that was the, she was somehow creating a space where that was becoming more possible and that was in an organisation with quite a diverse number of staff, you know, some of them um, from European countries, some of them from Kenya, some of them from Somalia. Um, I thought that was very promising. Um, Mm. I think there's also a lot that we can learn from other organisations or movements that perhaps don't fit solidly within the aid development sector but we can learn from them and I think that that includes um, a lot of the African feminist movements where they have really worked on bringing self and collective care into the workspace Mm -hmm. to really kind of reflect on issues of power for instance how do we use our power positively or negatively um how do we use our privilege positively or negatively um there's a particular book called um which you can get online called organizations with a soul which was written by two african feminists um their names are hope and rudo chigudu and they they are looking at how do we bring the soul the heart back into an organization so that we are all working at this together and there isn't these divisions and this kind of 
ego self that's that's not really very connected to the other people around you so yeah I'm inspired by that kind of work and I think there's a lot that we can learn um, and I'm sure there are other organizations out there that are trying and we need to we need to see what they're doing and, and what's working and what isn't was it weird to re-encounter not the exact same group of people obviously but same peer group, effectively. Was it weird to re-encounter that same peer group from an external perspective? Mm. Did the way that you see and experience the exact same set of practices change when you stepped from insider to outsider? And I'm talking here predominantly about your, your doctoral research in uh, Kenya, but anywhere else as well. What, was the, what were the most striking things for you? I, what I would say as well about doing the research is that um, it was difficult. It was difficult to go into those environments and do the research. And this was, this was a kind of new thing for me. You know, I, mm. I I'd previously worked for Amnesty International, worked for other organisations where you go in, you document things, you come out. And yeah, there's the struggle of, you know, you're coming up against people that don't want to speak to you. But, but you've kind of got that protection around you of, of your NGO identity. Mm-hmm. And you don't have that as an independent researcher. You go out and you have to make those relationships and build those relationships. And what I realised, and perhaps it's obvious, is that people were not always so keen to talk to me about their stress and about mm. their burnout. Um, or, or they'd often kind of say things like, oh, you're doing research on stress and burnout, you can interview me, ha, ha, ha. And then I'd never hear from them again. You know, they'd sort of disappear. So it was, it was difficult to build those relationships and actually build the trust to kind of have those conversations. So that, that was something I came up against, is this kind of unwillingness, and, and I can understand why, you know, to, to talk to a, a researcher about it. But I'd also say, you know, doing this kind of research, you're in the field for a year, sometimes for some people it's for longer. So you really, you do immerse yourself in your subjects. You really immerse yourself in the day-to-day lives of, of the people there and what's going on. And because uh, I was using a, a method where it's often a sort of evolving conversations. You're not going in with a structured interview or a list of questions. You never know where it's headed. And so what you get from that is you see all sorts of aspects of one person or all sorts of aspects of one organisation. And I think that's really interesting because it's quite different from doing development or human rights research where you go in, you've got your agenda, the person you're interviewing is a survivor, in inverted commas, or they're a beneficiary, in inverted commas, and, you know, the the questions are targeted towards that. Mm -hmm. You're not really hearing much else about who they are. And what you get with the research I was doing was all the different, you know, the many aspects of of being human. Um, So I found that really interesting and and very important when looking at a context where, particularly in Kenya, where there is an increasing national workforce now. You've got, you know, many 
of the big NGOs where it's certainly in certain regional offices, it's mainly Kenyan staff. And that's, you know, as, as an international aid worker, you're not really seeing the dynamics of that very much. It's there, but you're not interacting with it. And certainly there's quite a divide between the way the, particularly the kind of European or American staff live and socialise and how the Kenyans live and socialise. And there's, there's often a bit of a social divide perhaps less so in recent years, but it's still, it's still there. And I, I really sort of, I really valued that experience of seeing mm. both sides and the realities of working in those contexts and really hearing the everyday grind of, of, of being a national aid worker um, on a lower salary, on a more precarious contract a lot of the time not able to fulfill career aspirations because of that or because you've got a husband and a family and they don't necessarily really support what you're doing as a woman as an African woman and mm. you know th there are stories like that that I heard that I think we don't hear so much when we're just going about our work uh, within the aid sector so yeah hugely valuable and important mm. So what is next for you then? You made this pretty big pivot, let's say, mm -hmm. <laughs> pretty big shift in direction um, to go off and, and do this research, which is, must have been difficult to fit in a clear disciplinary field, by the way. Super interesting to me, but I imagine academics would struggle to pigeonhole yeah. it. Uh, what comes after that, having navigated those obstacles? Mm. Well, I, I did this because I wanted to support the sector. I mean, you know, not, I didn't do it to um, deliver lots of academic lectures on the subject, although who knows, that could happen as well. But, but I think it's important to, to bring these ideas to the sector now. And... I guess, you know, you're asking me about the kind of policy changes. That's, that's my challenge now, is, is where does this equate to action and, and change? Um, and I'm, I'm in discussions with, with others that are doing similar work about how we build a bit of a movement or a collective mm. around this so that we all have different skills and different experiences to bring around what we actually mean by, by well-being and, and how we can be opening up that conversation within organisations. So that's what I want to do. And I, I think there are a number of possibilities there for me in terms of doing more research, not at an academic level, but um, organisationally, you know, organisations that are trying to understand why their staff are burning out or, or why there are particular problems there to explore that more with them but to also yeah pay attention to to these issues of issues of gender issues of race within organizations um, mm. how that's being played out how we can be supporting staff better and acknowledging differences and diversity how a uh, support service, a staff support service, 
really listens to different staff needs and isn't just a one size fits all approach. You know, mm-hmm. what does a, um, a diverse workforce need um, and how could that be delivered? And how do we encourage spaces and conversations where we're being more truthful, more honest, more vulnerable? more compassionate with each other in order to support each other better what would that look like and and trying to help uh, organizations create that space that's what i'm i'm interested in doing and carrying on sharing the ideas from my research um, and hopefully seeing things evolve in a positive direction that's what i'd like to see <laughs> you know, i'm aware there's uh, no such thing as a, a toolkit for this sort of challenge. But has there been a point of reference that has been very useful to you in this regard? You know, a book or maybe a personal role model even, but that has sort of expanded your, your thinking or your ability to undertake that kind of reflection exercise? Last year there was the um, Healing Solidarity Conference, uh, which was an online conference to consider ways of doing development differently um, and to really address some of those major problems but also sort of the, the you know, major problems of structure and, and racism for instance in the sector but also the problems of well-being and self-care and and that was organized by Marianne Clements who's who's still carrying on with the work um, and I was one of the speakers at that conference, but there were many others from from all. I mean, I I just encourage people to look on the mm-hmm. on the Healing Solidarity website because there there were speakers from all over the place. It wasn't the typical kind of NGO speaker from the global north, even though I supposedly it might be one of those. But there were many others that were bringing in their ideas. Again, often. African feminist perspectives on what does self-care look like, how, you know, what does, for instance, emotional embodiment look like, how do we actually embody who we are and our suffering and how might that be useful in reconceptualising what we mean by things like trauma and, and those sorts of experiences, but also others that were doing fundraising differently or working with donors differently or interacting with partner organizations in a in a more sort of uh, leadership way allowing leadership from the grassroots so there were all kinds of diverse ideas and speakers on there and that was hugely inspiring to see wow there, there are lots of people out there that are committed to doing things differently to kind of changing the structure challenging the structures of aid and how we do it um, and giving more voice to people that historically have not been given that space and teaching us how, how do we give that space? What does that actually mean? Mm. Um, rather than just intellectualising it and saying that's something we should do. How, what does it mean in practice? So there's a lot of conversations that are continuing around that. Um, you know, we, we all need to be engaging with it because it's, it's innovative and interesting and it gives hope that we can be operating in a different way that's more caring, not just to the communities that we work with, but more caring to ourselves um, and with each other to feel that we are really doing this in solidarity. Mm. 
Excellent. Well, that's a, it's a good reference point because it's uh, easily accessible and uh, a multiplicity of perspectives. So yeah, absolutely. That works, that works yeah. well. And the conversations are carrying on. I mean, there's a, there's, it's a proper uh, online platform is being mm. created now where everyone can engage in those conversations, um, whether you're a member of staff or a manager or a consultant or a writer or whatever. It's, it's yeah, trying to get that inspiration from... from people that have something to say about this that we don't always hear from. Mm. Terrific. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times, and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.